You good, T-Minus? Welcome back to 40 Minutes. This is the fourth episode, and I hope everyone is having a great week. In this week's episode, it's going to be a little bit different than past episodes because I am going to be having some soccer in this episode, yes. I know soccer has made its way into my podcast because why not? It's a great sport, and I kind of want to discuss it a little bit. So without going into too much detail, let's begin with four interesting topics that I believe should be heard. Discussion number one, the Joker. So the Denver Nuggets are currently tied with the Portland Trailblazers in the Western Conference Finals. The series is at 2-2. Game 5 is tonight. It is in Denver. I am recording this on a Tuesday and releasing this on a Wednesday. So if anyone listens to this tomorrow and says, oh, Game 5 already happened. But the series is tied at 2-2 and Game 5 is tonight. And the big story here has been how good Nikola Jokic, who is nicknamed the Joker, has really been in the playoffs so far, just not even in this series, but also what he did in the first round against the Spurs. And I want to I wanna talk about Jokic specifically here because I don't think people really understand how dominant he's actually been in the playoffs so far as a whole. And right now, I think that he's making a really, really strong case to solidify himself as the best center in the NBA. Jokic right now is averaging a triple-double in the playoffs, almost a triple-double in the playoffs. He's averaging 24-9-13, and 13, which is remarkable. He is very, very talented. A lot of people have said over the last couple months and during the season even that Joel Embiid is the best center in the NBA. But after watching four games of the Raptors and Sixers series and what I saw in the Nets series as well, with Game 5 also being here tonight on a Tuesday night, I really can't sit here and say that I would think Joel Embiid is the best center in the NBA. Now, there's a few reasons to that. I think Embiid, with his durability issues, he's been sick a couple times in this series against the Raptors, which is kind of question, which is kind of questioning his toughness a little bit. He's always hurt. Another thing with him is his motor on how hard he actually plays. It kind of feels like it's whenever he wants to play hard instead of him bringing that high motor each and every night. Even in the playoffs, it's kind of getting questioned a little bit. And for that, for me, for that, that kind of takes away from solidifying him as the best center in the NBA. Now, I know Embiid has, has the body of work that you see from a center that you like and just the prototypical body of a center big man. He can shoot the ball. He's he's a pretty good passer. He's really good in the low post area. But that just really bothers me that sometimes he doesn't come out with a high motor. And I think he should be doing that each and every night, especially in the playoffs here. Because when you see games where he puts up like 10 points and like six rebounds, he's not even active in the defensive end or the rebounding end, which really, really questions how well he's how dedicated he actually is to the Sixers and even the game that Embiid sat he sat game three against the Nets in the first round when the series was tied 1-1 the Sixers offense if you watch that game seemed to flow just a lot better without Embiid which is very very strange if you're trying to consider this guy the best center in the league and if this if you're the Sixers and you're trying to build around this guy for the future I don't really think with Embiid as I don't really think with Embiid 
he really elevates anyone's game either. At least on the Sixers team, I think Ben Simmons is the one that kind of elevates everyone else's game because he's getting guys involved. And even when Joel is getting double teams, he's kind of just kicking the ball back out on the wing and then just reposting and getting it right right on the low block again. So that's another thing that really kind of bothers me with Embiid a little bit, that he really doesn't make anyone else on his teams better. Now, talking a little bit with Jokic here, what he's doing in the playoffs right now is just amazing. If you watch the Nuggets play, I know they're not really a popular team, but if you get a chance to watch the Nuggets, you, you got to watch Jokic play. You can make this, this argument that he's even the third best player in the playoffs, maybe even second best, honestly, behind Durant and Kawhi Leonard. The Nuggets are one of the youngest teams in the NBA. They're extremely young. Their starting five is young with Gary Harris, Jamal Murray, Torrey Craig, Millsap's a little bit older, and then Jokic. And for them to get the two seed during the regular season was just beyond expectations for them. Last year, they got to the final game of the season. They lost to the Timberwolves. That's why they ultimately missed the playoffs. But they were right there. So a lot of people thought they would make the playoffs. But for them to get the two seed this year was just absolutely amazing. And it really exceeded expectations that anyone had for them. With Jokic, dealing back, talking about Jokic here again, he makes his guys that really aren't, I wouldn't say good players, but guys that he he gets these guys a lot better shots than they're accustomed to seeing and he makes these guys better with Tory Craig he gets Tory Craig better shots he helps Millsap a lot he definitely helps Millsap a lot just because of his ability to stretch the floor and because of his ability to pass out of the double team and the with the Nuggets here because Jokic is able to ball handle so well with Millsap because with Millsap he can become the screener in this instance with Jokic and pick and roll so they're doing center to power forward screen and rolls which is which is amazing to see because of Jokic's ability to ball handle and even with Millsap's ability to ball handle they're doing screen and rolls with Jokic as the screener instead of the ball handler so he helps Jokic a lot him and Jamal Murray have a really really nice chemistry that's awesome to see as well so he's elevating all these guys' games which is great to see in this series against the Blazers, I mentioned in a previous podcast, I thought that the Nuggets were going to win, and I thought they were going to get to the Western Conference Finals and play against the Warriors. Uh, Jokic has been able to exploit a lot of Cantor's defensive problems all series long, as well as he did with Jakob Hurdle in round number one and LaMarcus Aldridge when they were guarding him. In the next round, if the Nuggets win, I think that they're going to play the Warriors, and I think that he's got an advantage against Draymond Green or whoever on Golden State decides to guard him. I know when... They played against the Warriors in the regular season. I know that DeMarcus Cousins gave him some problems. I don't think DeMarcus Cousins is going to be back, even though he said he's going to play in the playoffs again. I don't think he'd be playing until the finals anyways. But for any matchup that he has against the Warriors, I think he's going to dominate that matchup as well, just like he's done against the Spurs and just like he's done against the Blazers. I think he'll do that again against the Warriors. I think if they do, by any slim chance, play the Rockets, even though I do not think the Rockets are going to win that series, but they've made it interesting finally against the Warriors. I think he's got a mismatch even against Capella, and I think he can exploit that just because of the weight that he has compared to Capella. Capella is more athletic, but because of his his body and his ability to maneuver around the rim, I think he's got an advantage against Capella as well. He's a matchup nightmare because of his ability to score in the low post, because of what I mentioned before, his his ball handling off of pick-and-roll situations, his ability to facilitate, his ability to score as the screener in pick-and-roll, which, which is also another big thing for him. I know a lot of centers, when they set screen-and-rolls here, 
they're just kind of there to sink the defense in. But when Jokic gets the ball off the screen and rolls, he's scoring. He's making a play for his teammates, which is awesome to see. Jokic's ability to shoot the ball and stretch the floor from 12 to 25 feet out. And his ability to create off the dribble just from the three-point line or elbow mark area is awesome to see as well. With Jokic, I know like when you look at him, he doesn't look like a guy that you would say, oh, he looks like the best center in the NBA just because of his body physique. And I think that's kind of I think that's kind of discrediting everything that he's been able to do so far in the playoffs and what he even did in the regular regular season. I remember when the playoffs were about to start, and I was watching a few of these shows in the morning where they're talking about the playoffs, this and that. And I remember Nick Wright saying that Jokic was overrated. And I found that really, really hard to believe because even in the regular season, Jokic was outstanding. He made his first he made his first all-star game. He's gonna be on one of the all NBA teams, first, second, or third team. I think he's gonna make second team. And I thought that was really, really strange and really, really odd to hear. Um they weren't the brightest comments and when he also said that the Nuggets didn't have a go-to player during crunch time, Jokic just kind of made those comments look foolish as well when, when, once Nick Wright said those things about him. So I think that because of what you see in Jokic and you kind of look at him, this guy's from Serbia. He really doesn't have the body physique of other centers, big, strong, and athletic centers in this league. That kind of gets discredited from him, and I think that that should not be considered when you're kind of talking about the best centers in the league. Now, the last thing here on Jokic before I move on to the next topic here, and I thought this was really awesome to see. I saw this stat on Twitter uh, yesterday morning. As of right now in the playoffs um, through Game 4 for the Nuggets, he currently ranks, in all the important categories, he ranks this. He ranks first in field goals made. He ranks first in total rebounds. He ranks first in assist. He ranks fourth in steals. And he is currently first in plus-minus minutes for any player in the playoffs. This is, this is why I think that Jokic is the best big man in the NBA I think his ability to impact the game in several different ways, and I think that because of Embiid's durability issues, his ability to not really make anyone better on his team, and his ability to kind of have these these low-scoring and low-rebounding games in the playoffs has kind of cemented from me saying that Embiid's the best big in the NBA, and I think that Jokic is the best center in the NBA. Discussion number two, EPL final day. So the final day of the English Premier League is going to be this Sunday, which is May 12th, and I have not talked about soccer at all in any of my podcasts, so I figured this would be this week would be a very good week to talk about it because of what is going on right now in the English Premier League and why it is so important that Sunday is a must-watch for TV. There are two teams right now who I'm going to be talking about because these are the two teams that are at the top of the league and who have been at the top of the league for pretty much all of all since since January basically. It is Liverpool and Manchester City with Manchester City currently up 1 point in the standings. Both have played the same amount of games. Liverpool will be playing at home against Wolves on Sunday and Manchester City will be playing away at Brighton. I think Liverpool would take care of business at home against Wolves, who have been in pretty good form the last four games. They've only given up two goals, and they've won three out of the four games, and they drew the other game. So Wolves have been in pretty good form, but I think that Liverpool being at home in this game is a big factor. I think that they will get a much-needed goal, and I think they'll win a low-scoring game against Wolves. Liverpool has been in very good form. 
As well, after drawing two straight games at the end of January to the beginning of February to West Ham and Leicester City, those two draws that happened at that point may very well come back to haunt them in this race against Manchester City. Because at that point, that was when Manchester City kind of started to take off. From that point, when they had those two draws, Liverpool did, Manchester City since that point has won 13 straight games without drawing any matches. So that's at that point right there, that's kind of when Manchester City took off and they've kind of taken a stranglehold on this lead in the EPL. Now Manchester City and Liverpool have kind of been back and forth and who is atop of the leaderboard and whatnot. But it has always seemed to be Manchester City with the same amount of games played atop of the leaderboard as they are right now, currently up one point. I think that Manchester City will also get the win on Sunday as well. They're going to be playing against Brighton. Even though they're going to be playing away, I think they do get the win. Brighton's not a very talented team. They have struggled much of the season as they were on the relegation line for a while. They did avoid the relegation line, and they are going to stay in the English Premier League, so good for them. But I think that Manchester City is going to win this game. Liverpool is going to need a win, and they're going to need a Manchester City draw in order to win this thing. Liverpool today had an awesome comeback against Barcelona. They're going to be advancing to the Champions League finals, so good for them. It would be a very, very good story if they ended up winning the Champions League and the EPL. I do think they have a very good chance to win Champions League, but as far as the EPL, I do not think they are going to win the title on Sunday just because of Manchester City's opponent. Brighton's not a very good team at all. Like I said, they struggle for much of the season, and I think that Manchester City's going to get this thing done and win back-to-back EPL titles. Um, now, Monday, if you did watch the game, Manchester City played against Leicester City. They needed a miracle goal from a defenseman who does not score a lot of goals for them at all. Uh, Vincent Company, who is a Belgium defender, he has not scored a goal in over 50 matches for Manchester City, and he was the one that had to ultimately save their season. He scored a goal around the 65-70th minute mark for Manchester City to win that game against Leicester City. He has, like I said, he hasn't scored a goal in over 50 matches for Manchester City, so it was a great time for him to score a goal and save Manchester City's season. He's a very, very good defender, but he does not score goals at all. And I think the last goal that he did score was off of a header, so it was really surprising to see, but it was a great, great goal for him outside of the box. So it saved Manchester City's season, and we'll see going into Sunday. Manchester City seemed like they had a goal coming for a while in that game. Sergio Aguero had two really, really good chances. One hit off of the crossbar there, and the goalie got a deflection on it. And then they got a bunch of chances in the first half and started the second half from their winger, Bernard, the Portuguese winger. So it looked like they had a goal coming for a while, and then finally they did strike. It did sense a huge, huge sense of relief for all Manchester City fans. Manchester City, they're looking to become back-to-back champions in the EPL, so they understand what it's like to get the job done come early April and early early May when the season ends, so they understand what's at stake here, looking to become back-to-back champions, and I think they do do that. Make sure to tune in this Sunday to catch these two games and see who will be crowned the EPL champion. Discussion number three, the Celtics. So the Celtics right now are currently down 3-1 to one in the Eastern Conference semifinals to the Bucks, and they're going to be losing this series. And then what happens after that, there's going to be a lot of question marks what happened after that. Because with the Celtics here, they came into this series, they swept the Pacers. Now the Pacers are undermanned. 
They played well without Victor Oladipo when he first got hurt. But as the season progressed, the Pacers slumped, especially at the end. So when the Celtics won that series, in a lot of people's minds, they thought that they were starting to turn the corner and then they would have real success and potentially even win the East once that happened. And especially once they won game one against the Bucs, a lot of people started to think that this is the Celtics year. They're going to get to the finals and they are going to make some serious noise this time around. Eventually, unfortunately, that did not happen. That did not happen. And it's not going to be happening. The Celtics are going to get bounced in game five against the Bucs. They're going to be losing in five games here. And from there, there's a lot of question marks that are going to happen. What's going to happen with Kyrie Irving? They also have Marcus Morris, who is an unrestricted free agent as well. The Anthony Davis situation, what's going to happen with their young assets like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Terry Rozier even, what what happens there? So with the Celtics here, I think that Kyrie Irving is going to leave. Everyone thinks that Kyrie Irving is going to leave outside of Boston fans. In this, in the playoffs so far, he has not been good. He, especially in this series against the Bucs, he's he struggled very, very badly. He is shooting under 40% for the playoffs as a whole. And in this series, he I don't even think he's shooting over 35% in this series. He's been really, really bad against the Bucs. The Bucs, credit the Bucs, they've been awesome defensively on him. They've made him work for every single basket that he has scored. Eric Bledsoe, Chris Middleton, George Hill even at times. So you got to credit them. They've made him work for his shots. The Celtics, I think a lot of Celtics fans are probably thinking that. What happened once we got Kyrie Irving from last year's team when we didn't have Kyrie Irving in the playoffs? When the Celt- the Celtics, you can make an argument that they are actually worse with Kyrie Irving. They're, they're a worse team with Kyrie Irving because when Kyrie Irving is playing, the ball is sticking to his hands. He's just running a lot of iso ball. They're running pick and rolls with him, and he's just kind of dancing and doing his own thing. And I feel like with the way that their team is constructed right now, I feel like with the ball when the ball is moving and everyone is getting shots, that they play much better. And it's clearly showing in this series. It didn't show so much against the Pacers because they're an undermanned team. But in this series, it's definitely showing that when Kyrie Irving is trying to dance and do all this by himself, it is not going to work. And that's why they're going to be finding themselves out after Game 5. I think Kyrie Irving, like I said, is going to leave from that. There's kind of other questions that arise here. Marcus Morris is going to be a free agent. I think that whatever happens with the Anthony Davis situation is going to depend on if they resign Marcus Morris or not. Now, if Kyrie Irving leaves and the Celtics do end up trading, let's say, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and whatever assets the Pelicans may want. I don't know if they want a pick in return. I don't know if they want somebody like a Marcus Morris or Terry Rozier. I, I, I'm not really sure, even though I think Terry Rozier is a restricted free agent, so I don't know how that would work. But somebody along those lines. From there, I don't. if they do trade for Anthony Davis, I think that the Celtics have to resign Marcus Morris because at that point you lose two wings – and you really don't have another option there unless the Pelicans throw in somebody like a Solomon Hill or somebody else that's on their roster right now just as a throw into the trade. But I'm not really sure, you know, Marcus Morris, I I think that he does get resigned if they do trade for Anthony Davis. Now, if they don't trade for Anthony Davis and they keep Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum 
and Gordon Hayward, the other wings that they have, I think that they may let Marcus Morris walk because I think he's going to get a little bit more than they want to than they want to pay him in the free agent market. Marcus Morris had one of his best seasons this year. He had a really good efficient season. He was one of their most consistent players all year long. He had a good season, and I think he's going to get paid a little bit more than the Celtics want to pay him. And the Celtics already did this with one player. They did this already with Marcus Smart. So I don't think they're going to want to do this with two players, keep that keep these players that are a little bit more expensive than they're actually worth. So I think that if they don't trade for Anthony Davis, I think he's gone. Um, I think if they do trade for Anthony Davis, I think he stays because they're going to need some some wing depth there. Now, another question with the Celtics. Let's say that they do lose Kyrie Irving, which I think everyone outside of Boston fans think is going to happen. And they trade Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and whoever else, whether it's a pick or not. Do the Celtics really even get better here? I mean, they do lose Kyrie Irving, and Terry Rozier shifts into the starting point guard position because I'm assuming at that point the Celtics will sign Terry Rozier to a decent contract even though he's a restricted free agent. Do the Celtics really even get better at that point? Because you lose Kyrie Irving, you lose Tatum and Jalen Brown, and you basically have Al Horford, Anthony Davis, Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward, and then what's left? I guess you you have Marcus Smart there, and I guess that you probably want to resign Marcus Morris because it makes the most sense because you lose the wing depth there. But and then you have Baines off the bench. But is Al Horford and Anthony Davis really the greatest front court pairing? I mean, I know both of those guys can really do pretty much everything you ask for them, but I don't know how. Al Horford would feel about that, and that's I feel about that in that situation because they do really the same thing, and I think that what makes Al Horford so effective on the Celtics is because they don't have another center on their team or even big guy that can do what he does. So I don't really know what the Celtics do if they get Anthony Davis in a trade and what what they do with Al Horford there. So that is something that's interesting as well to find out in this situation that happens with that. But I just think that if the Celtics do trade for Anthony Davis and they lose Kyrie Irving, I mean, do they really, they don't really even get better from here because like I mentioned here a couple times, they lose their wings and they lose key contributors to the roster that they currently have. So I, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. I know that Danny Ainge had something to say in the Pelicans holding off at the trade deadline saying they have assets to trade and that they should wait till the summer. There was rumors swirling about that. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see there. Kyrie Irving, like I mentioned, I think as good as gone. I think it's a weird situation with him. He wanted to leave Cleveland. The rumors suggested that he wanted to leave Cleveland because of uncertainty with LeBron and because he wanted to lead his own team. Well, now he got his chance to lead his own team. And for him, if I was in his shoes here, I I would be a little embarrassed because they get to the game seven of the Eastern conference finals without him. And now they're going to lose in the second round in five games with him. Now for him, that's got to bug him a little bit. And I think him and Terry Rozier, I don't think there's, I don't really think there's anything else to suggest this except body language. I think him and Terry Rozier seem to butt heads a little bit. And if you don't, if you don't watch the Celtics play, you wouldn't see it. But I just think that Kyrie Irving 
has some he has some sort of a look to him when him and Rozier are on the floor together or when Rozier comes in for him. There's just some sort of look there, and I think that Kyrie Irving does not like Terry Rozier. And like I mentioned, I think it's really embarrassing for Kyrie that these guys got farther and almost to the finals without him. He comes in this year. They're going to lose in five games in the semifinals with him. That's got to piss him off a little bit. And for him especially, too, because he wanted to leave Cleveland and lead his own team. Now, if he does decide to go to the Knicks or if he does decide to go to the Nets, now I guess the Nets all of a sudden are the favorite to land him. And let's say that they they don't get a Kevin Durant to follow him. He's kind of stuck in that same exact situation here where he's got to lead the team himself. And after watching what he's done with the Celtics, especially having a good team with the Celtics, I don't think that he is a 1A type of player that can lead your team to a championship. And I I mentioned that um, last week in my podcast with Kemba Walker. Kyrie Irving's more talented than Kemba Walker, but I think they're both in the same boat here where I think they need a 1A star to lead them because I think they're a 1B star. They need to play that second fiddle role. And I think it's just very interesting with Kyrie Irving because, like I said, he, he's he got a really good team there. And he said some things, a lot of things to suggest that he wants out of there. So it's going to be interesting to see with the Celtics what happens with them, what happens with him, Marcus Morris, if they trade for Anthony Davis, how they even get better if they lose Kyrie Irving and then they get Anthony Davis. So I'm just really interested to see what happens there. I'm interested to see as well what happens in Game 5. I'm interested to see how Kyrie comes out. He's had the last two games, especially at home, he shot absolutely awful. And I know I mentioned a little bit earlier that he should not shot good at all in the series at all. But it's going to be interesting to see how he comes out. Because in the post-game interview after last game, he said that he should have shot 30 shots instead of the 22, 24, whatever he did shoot. So that's going to be interesting to see as well. I don't know if he's going to be passive, if he's going to come out and just say, you know, screw this, I'm done with this team. It's just going to be really interesting to see how this kind of unfolds. And I think that Kyrie Irving is probably leaving a good situation with the Celtics for a less situation that I don't even know what he's going to get himself into. Now, obviously, like I mentioned with the 1A and 1B star, Kyrie Irving being a 1B star, if Kevin Durant joins him with the Nats or the Knicks, I think that that's... I think that that's probably the best case scenario for him himself because he gets a chance to play second fiddle to another star who's who's better than him. But if he doesn't get anybody with him, it's just going to be tough to imagine what he's going to actually do for that franchise. So with everything unfolding here, the Celtics season ending and free agency coming up here, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens with the Celtics and where they go. Discussion number four, Rookie of the Year. So I'm now in this next segment, I'm going to be discussing who I think will win Offensive Rookie of the Year in the NFL and Defensive Rookie of the Year in the NFL. So I'm going to start with Offensive Rookie of the Year. I think Kyler Murray is going to end up getting Offensive Rookie of the Year. And I think this is going to pretty much be by default because he's the number one pick. But I'm going to give you a few reasons why. I think him coming in and starting day one for the Arizona Cardinals is going to help him. He's going to get a lot more reps than some of these other quarterbacks that got drafted that may not be playing right away. He's also a do-threat quarterback, which is going to make his stats at the end of the year look better than most of these other rookie quarterbacks as well. I think because of him playing in Cliff Kingsbury's system, 
He's going to be able to throw the ball a lot because of what Cliff likes to do. He's going to run an air raid offense, and this is going to be unique to defenses in the NFL. It's it's really not the same type of offense that Chip Kelly ran when he came into the league. Um, it's a little bit different, and you really can't compare the two because with the air raid offense that he's going to bring, I think that they're going to throw a lot of screens and a lot of passes downfield. That's a little bit different than what Kelly would used to run when he was a coach in the NFL. And I think because of the air raid, I think that Murray could have potentially some huge games in his rookie season. He doesn't have the best offensive line, but it did improve. They didn't really draft any offensive linemen, which is a little bit surprising, but they did add two veterans to their offensive line that are going to start. J.R. Sweezy and Marcus Gilbert from the Steelers. J.R. Sweezy came from the Seahawks and as well as another in the box as well. Um, I think that these two guys are definitely going to help their offensive line. Sweezy's been an average guard the last two seasons, and Marcus Gilbert has been a pretty good guard the last two, three seasons as well for the Steelers. So I think those two will definitely help him. Um, I think because of his running ability, he's going to get out of a lot of sacks, just like Russell Wilson does. And we see that every week with Russell Wilson, which could lead to long runs and also explosive plays downfield. His weapons are are improved from last year to this year with the Cardinals. They got a bunch of young receivers who will help him. I think Christian Kirk is going to have a good second season this year for them. He he had a surprise. He had quite a bit of a surprise season in his rookie year. I think he shocked a lot of people how how fast he came on. And as we know, Fitzgerald is always dependable. I think David Johnson should also be improved as well because of what Kyler can do and the type of option plays that they can run and the type of replay that Kyler can run. I think that Kyler being able to throw the ball to David Johnson out of the backfield a lot more than Josh Rosen did will help him as well. And I think that'll kind of get David Johnson going a little bit and get him going a lot quicker than he did last year. He's got big play written all over him. As he showed that time and time and again at Oklahoma, I know he had some really good receivers at Oklahoma, some explosive receivers, and CeeDee Lamb and Marquise Brown, who got drafted this year in the first round. He's going to need to adjust a little bit to the speed in the game in the NFL. The linebackers and secondary players are a lot faster, so those types of runs where he takes off in two, three seconds when the pocket collapsed at Oklahoma – those running lanes aren't going to be there in the NFL, so that's something to look to to look forward to as he's playing in these games, and kind of see how he changes his mindset when he's when he's running in the league. There's no really standout running backs, and there's no really standout wide receivers. The first wide receiver was taken at the end of the first round, Nikhil Harry. The running backs, Josh Jacob, I think he could have a chance to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. The tight ends that were drafted high, I do not think that any of them will get the ball enough to even be considered for this award, and it's hard to be considered for this award as a rookie tight end especially. And like I said with the other quarterbacks in this draft class, I don't think that they're in a great situation to post numbers right away. I think I mentioned Haskins a bunch in my podcast. I think when he gets a chance, I think he's going to post good numbers, but I do not think that it'll be right away. So I think, like I mentioned, that kind of by default that – Kyler Murray is going to end up winning Offensive Rookie of the Year. That's my prediction for offensive. Now, with Defensive Rookie of the Year, I think that Devin White from LSU and is now playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's a linebacker. I think he's got a great chance to win this award, and it's a couple reasons why. I think Devin White's going to do a lot of what Darius Leonard did for the Colts last season. Darius Leonard's a linebacker for the Colts. He won Defensive Rookie of the Year. He shocked a lot of people from the from the 
position that he was drafted from to winning the award, he shocked a ton of people. He had an amazing season with the Colts. He was their backbone of their defense. He did everything for them, sacks, pass deflections, forced fumbles, tackles, a bunch of tackles. I think he led the league in tackles as well. So that's something that I think Devin White's going to need to do for them. He's going to have to fly around and make a bunch of tackles, rush the passer and play in coverage, kind of like what I was explaining here with Darius Leonard. He's going to have to do that those things for the Bucks defense because they weren't very good as a whole last year. They were bottom 10 in yards allowed and points. So he's going to have to be that backbone just like Darius Leonard was for the Colts this season. The Bucks did end up getting Todd Bowles as their defensive coordinator, so I think that's definitely going to help their defense as a whole, and I think that's going to help Devin White. He Devin White was um, named the Linebacker of the Year Award in college football last season. He was an All-American. He was first-team All-SEC. He had a bunch of different accolades that you want from a linebacker. He recorded over 120 tackles last season. He's awesome against the run, and he's really good in coverage. He's also able to show that he has some pass rushing ability. He had three sacks last season, and in the last two seasons, he had eight total sacks. So he's gonna. I think he's going to be able to post some, some sack numbers. I don't think they'll be high, obviously, from the linebacker position. But I think with Todd Bowles' defense, because he likes to blitz a lot, I think that's definitely going to help him, and I think he'll produce a couple sacks. So that'll help his case as well for defensive rookie of the year. Um, I think that Devin White is someone as a rookie who is going to play an extraordinary amount compared to all the other rookies besides the quarterbacks obviously I think that he's going to play at least 85 to 90 percent of the Bucks defensive snaps this season now obviously that includes bearing any injury that he has I think that he's going to get that many snaps because I think he's truly that talented. I think they really need him because their linebacking position right now is not the best. I know they have Levante David, and they also got Buchanan there from Arizona, who's a linebacker safety hybrid. So I think he's going to get a lot of snaps because of that and because their defense is not very good. He's going to need to make some plays for them because they need him to. Because like I mentioned, their defense is not good, so they're going to need him to make plays for them. He, I expect him to... to be a monster this season honestly and I think that because with Todd Bowles there I think that he also will help rejuvenate him and make him into a a star type of player in year number one it also should be noted that under Todd Bowles the last two seasons he's had a linebacker that's recorded at least 120 tackles for him so I think that Devin White should fall right under that category most likely if he's able to get that many snaps as I partic- as I expect with the Bucks this season. That includes the podcast, the 40-minute podcast for this week. Thank you for listening. I would like to put this out there that if you do have any recommendations for what you would like to, for me to talk about during next week's, next week's episode, I will take that in consideration as I'm having a little bit of trouble trying to come up with some topics to talk about as I don't want to follow some of the other po- sports podcasts and other TV sport um, popular shows out there so that's what i'm trying to do here but so if you have any recommendations please leave those for me and have a good rest of the week she ain't a feeling because we ain't speaking but she don't even talk she gonna get nasty whenever i see her she try to follow her she been doing business with the ops you and all them we gonna keep running around with them gloss